0: Our scripture passage this morning is 1 Peter 1, 22 through 2, 3. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the lord is good this is the word of the lord thanks be to god
1: pray with me Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for you have willed your truth to triumph through us. Father, we're thankful for a firm foundation that you've laid for our faith in your excellent word. Pray that as we leave here, we would be more grateful for what you've given us through your word preserved and written. God, we pray for those who are entrapped and enslaved by some particular besetting sin, would you give them special grace to overcome? We know that it's your will that we not remain enslaved. It's a battle, it's a lifelong battle. Some of us will battle some of the same sins our whole life. But if there are those who are in a particular point of needing deliverance, would you bring them progress today and this week? Would you help them to have a taste of your goodness so that whatever it is that they keep turning to would would be like a dog returning to its vomits. You would lose the taste for that sin, knowing that it leads to bankruptcy, knowing that it will not satisfy. Enhance our taste buds. And Father, your son commands us to pray for workers. And so we pray that you would continue to raise up workers even from among us, God. Would you be working in in the hearts of men and women and couples and that you would raise up someone that we could then send forth. The harvest is plentiful here in our city, in the state, all across the world. So we just ask you to continue to do what you do, provide. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word will stand forever. Heaven and earth will pass away. Your words will never pass away. We pray this through Jesus Christ, your Son, our King, who lives and reigns with you, and the Holy Spirit, ever one God. Amen. Well, kids, do you know what today is? (laughs) Besides... Besides National Cavity Day, I mean, I think we still got crusty old Snickers in our pantry from last year. Break your tooth eating our candy bars. Well, today, among other things, is Reformation Day. 504 years ago today, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the church door at Wittenberg that led to the Protestant Reformation. And the battle cry of the Reformation was post tenebras looks, after darkness, light. The Roman Catholic Church in the 15th and 16th centuries was in terrible state, morally and doctrinally, and Catholic scholars agree with that, by the way. And most importantly, the Bible was obscured. Therefore, Christ was obscured. This is why, here at this church, we love the Reformation. We are a deliberately Protestant church, and so it's good to remember our theological forebears. If you're a guest here, welcome. Glad you're here. I want to warn you this is not going to be a normal sermon. We normally just preach through books of the Bible, taking verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph. But this morning, I want to do what I do just every couple of years, and that is draw our attention to one of these heroes of the faith with more of a biographical sketch. A couple of years ago, we did this with Martin Luther. Uh, you can find that on our YouTube page and website if you want to listen to that. But this morning, I want us to consider William Tyndale. I think we have some pictures that going along. Man, what a stud, right? I can't prove this, but I think William Tyndale might be the most quoted man in the entire world, even more than Shakespeare. It'll make more sense after we get done here in a moment. But he's known as the underground translator. He was born in Gloucester, England, 1494. A little context that we've got to remember for his time period. For a thousand years previously, from his time previous, the only translation of the Bible was Jerome's Latin Vulgate's. And most Christians did not know Latin, and very few people actually had access to it. And it was a flawed translation to add to it. Can you imagine coming to church weekly where the priest gets up and recites a bunch of language you don't even understand? Just checking a box, hoping you're pleasing God. You have no idea. Latin was all that they had, and only the educated had it for most of church history. And at this time, things were so bad, there were many priests that didn't even know Latin. They didn't even know what they were reading. Well, during this time, there was a group called the Culdees in Iona, Scotland, and they had this Bible college where they started teaching the Word, and one of their students was a man named John Wycliffe. Wycliffe learned the Bible, went on to pastor in England. Wycliffe is known as the morning star of the Reformation. He taught at Oxford from 1362 to 72, and he would write and he would preach truths that ended up being against the Roman Catholic Church. This was before the printing press, so he was writing everything. He one time wrote a tract called The Wicket that made a lot of waves, and in it he denied the Catholic teaching of transubstantiation, which is where the, the bread and the, the juice literally become the body and the blood of Jesus. So he was seeing truths in the Bible, and he was seeing distortions. But more than anything, John Wycliffe wanted the Bible in English. That was his passion. Would the people of God in England have a Bible in their own language? But with no printing press, he had to hand copy everything. Not super efficient. And add to that, all he had Latin knowledge of was the Latin. So he was translating into English from the Latin Vulgate, not from the original languages, Greek and Hebrew. And again, the Latin Vulgate had some pretty serious flaws in it. Well, in the late 1300s, the Roman Catholic Church banned John Wycliffe's translation, the only English Bible in the world, banned by the church of its day. Again, it was in bad shape. During Wycliffe's time, there were actually two popes, believe it or not. Reform was desperately needed on multiple levels. Well, Wycliffe, he has a stroke in 1384 while preaching. Not a bad way to go literally preaching to dying men as a dying man. And he dies in 1384, but then in 1415, he's banned as a heretic by the Roman Catholic Church, meaning condemned to hell. If you're banned as a heretic by the Roman Catholic Church, they were saying you're not saved. For you history buffs, this same council, where they condemned Wycliffe as a heretic, they burned John Huss, if you know the name. Who had learned so much from John Wycliffe's writings? Then in 1428, 44 years after John Wycliffe had died, Pope Martin V ordered that the bones of John Wycliffe be dug up and burned as is proper for heretics because he wanted the Bible in English. We take so much for granted today, don't we? Thank you, Lord, for raising up men of courage and conviction who want the word of God to go out. Well, the Catholics ended up condemning him and his followers. They called the followers of Wycliffe Lawlers. It was a slanderous term. It meant murmurers or mutterers. And Parliament passed this movement, this bill called the, it was called De Heretico Cumbrindo, on the burning of heretics in 1401, to burn heretics like Wycliffe and his followers, the Lollards. People were not even allowed to read an English translation. You couldn't own one. In 1519 in Coventry, England, John Fox records that seven Lollards, seven followers of Wycliffe were burned for teaching their kids the Lord's Prayer in English. What we just did a little while ago would have got you burned in England during this time. Well, again, during this time, the Gutenberg press is invented around in Germany around 1440, about a decade after the burning of wickless bones. Can you see a sense of God at work here? Can you see a sense of God's providence? Ephesians 1.11, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Friends, there is no Baptist church. There is no Reformation had there been no Gutenberg printing press. Just a little bit after this, there's this Roman Catholic scholar named Desiderius Erasmus. I think I have a picture of him as well. (laughs) Uh, Confession, that's not actually Erasmus. That's my son, Knox, but Abilene Classical Academy had a Reformation celebration, and so Knox was Erasmus. (laughs) It's the best I've got. So again, he's, he's no reformer. Erasmus is no reformer. Erasmus, though, cares about having the Bible. He cares about the Bible, and so he is, for the first time, putting together a critical edition of the Greek New Testament for the first time. Look at this. Gutenberg Printing Press, Greek New Testament. That equation equals Reformation. Erasmus gets in trouble, though. He has to go to Switzerland. He can't do that in England. It's published in 1516. First Greek New Testament printed together, published, and it set fire to Europe. Well, William Tyndale, an ordained Catholic priest, was converted. He was taught the truths of the Reformation. And for him, it was about one main doctrine, which really is the hallmark of the Reformation, and that is justification by faith alone. Roman taught that we are justified. We are declared in the right. Our sins are forgiven by faith plus works, which when you do that, grace is no longer grace. It was the battle cry. It was the hallmark. We are justified. We are forgiven. Sinners. By grace through faith alone, not faith plus anything, not grace plus anything, not Christ plus anything. He studied religion and language at Oxford and then Cambridge. He knew eight languages Latin, Greek, German, French, Hebrew, Spanish, Italian, and English. And so he's growing, he's studying the Bible, and there's a movement. It was actually a college movement. And he helped form what's known as the White Horse Inn Society. Twenty-five God-centered reformational men. They would come together, they would study the Greek New Testament and read Martin Luther books. That sounds like a party to me. <laughs> Some of the names you may know from that group Latimer, Riddler, Ridley, excuse me, not the Riddler. Latimer, Ridley, both who would be burned as well. Coverdell, Thomas Cranmer. Two archbishops, seven bishops, nine of them ended up being martyrs, studying and gaining conviction based upon the study of the Bible. And Tyndale, like Wycliffe, his driving passion was the Bible in English. But he wanted it from the original. He wanted a Bible in English from Greek and Hebrew, not from Latin. And he wanted the king to authorize this English Bible. He was becoming more and more reformed. He began to write against the Catholic Church, but he told the king, I'll stop writing any of that stuff if you will just print a Bible in English. He wanted his people to have a Bible they could read and understand. One time, a frustrated Catholic bishop said, we'd be better without God's law than the Pope's. This bishop is saying, if we had to choose, let's go with the Pope rather than God. To which Tyndale replied, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause the boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scripture than you do. He wanted the word of God to be let loose, but the Catholic church wanted to keep it confined. Why? Why would they do that? I think it's complicated and multifaceted. I think part of it is they knew that if you control the language, you control the people. At the time, many of the leaders in the church had become very greedy and power-hungry. Some said English was an unworthy language. It's not worthy of the Bible. Some worried that errors would creep in as they translated. Some worried that, well, if everyone has a Bible, everyone will be their own interpreter. There were deeper reasons, though. Issues that the Catholic Church was teaching... That had no basis in the Bible. Issues such as the Pope, the sacraments, justification by faith plus works, penance, indulgence, the priesthood, purgatory, the worship of Mary, transubstantiation, one could go on and on. They knew that if the Bible went to the people, there were many doctrines that they had made themselves that had no basis in the scripture and would be found out and denied. Well, Tyndale knew that he got to work. Translating, and the Catholic Church didn't like it. He was forced to flee his home in 1524. He becomes a fugitive in Germany and then the Netherlands. While he was in Germany, he spent some time with Martin Luther. Wouldn't you want to be a fly on the wall in that conversation? Tyndale and Luther. And Germany was a center of rabbinic learning, and so he learned Hebrew there, actually, from some of the best Hebrew scholars in the world, so that he could translate the Old Testament into english from hebrew then he goes to england antwerp known as the english house and befriends a colleague end up becoming a coworker named john rogers finishes his new testament in germany in 1525 and begins smuggling it into england in bags of flour and bells of cloth can you just imagine for a moment you're a christian you love the lord jesus christ you've never read the bible You've never had a copy of the scriptures. And all of a sudden those, those sheets come in and those bells of cloth come in and you're unwrapping it or you're pulling it from the flower and you're, you're dusting off these, these sheets that contain the word of God for the first time. Smuggling into England. It's printed and it's spread all over even though it was banned In London by Bishop Tunstall, the mystery of the forbidden book only spiked its interest. And Bishop Tunstall said it was filled with errors. Forget Tyndale's Bible, filled with errors, you should avoid it. Tyndale was pleased that Tunstall actually opened the Bible to study it, even if it was to find errors in Tyndale's work. The problem was that Tunstall was using the Latin Vulgate, not Greek and Hebrew. As the standard, the errors were in Tunstall's Bible, not Tyndale's. Some of the enemies of Tyndale thought, let's just buy up all the copies of the, of the Bible that we know could happen. So they bought them all up. Well, just provided more money to provide better printing in a revised edition. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. Tyndale snuck over to Belgium, the Belgium coast, because they had these really good printers and there he wanted to work on his Old Testament. And so he translated the Pentateuch, Joshua through Second Chronicles, and Jonah. And then he revised his New Testament in 1534, and it was smuggled in as well. One copy actually came to King Henry's court, to Anne Boleyn the Queen. That copy is in the British Library today. I think we have a picture of that as well. You can see this copy. Gorgeous book. Tyndale's condemned as a heretic by Rome in August of 1536, which again means he is not a Christian. He's consigned to hell. And this was, again, ho- about a whole lot more than simply a translation. This was about Scripture reforming the church. So much I could say, but let me just mention three words. Greek word presbyteros. Tyndale rightly translated it as elder rather than priest. Ecclesia. Tyndale rightly translated as congregation, rather than church. Metanaeo. Tyndale rightly translated as repentance, instead of do penance. One of his main common—I mean—a biographer says Tyndale cannot possibly have been unaware that those words, in particular undercut the entire sacramental structure of the thousand-year church throughout Europe, Asia, and North Africa. It was the Greek New Testament that was doing the undercutting. So I was, he was so passionate about not translating a translation, the Latin Vulgate, but translating from the original. And again, while well, the Catholic Church wants to put a stamp on Tyndale, they put a bounty out for his head. There was a man named Henry Phillips, Phillips had lost his father. He had received this massive inheritance and he ended up being irresponsible and he was supposed to take it to London. He squanders the whole thing on his way to London. But a bishop hears, a Catholic bishop hears about Phillips and his desperate state. And so he tries to take advantage of it and cut a deal with him. If you'll take down Tyndale, we will restore your fortune. Phillips goes and he befriends Tyndale, but he was no friend. He was a Judas. 1534, Phillips asked Tyndale to go to lunch. And against his better judgment, he goes. And so Tyndale is following him to lunch. They go through this tunnel where he was met at the end by a bunch of guards that Phillips had set up. And he's arrested and he's exiled to Vilvor Castle where he stayed and he was interrogated for 16 months. While there, he led the jail and the jail guard and his daughter to the Lord. It was a dark time. We only have evidence of one letter, ever from Tyndale, and it was sent from this castle. We've got a picture of that as well. It's in Latin. only writing we have from William Tyndale. I want to read it in whole. He says, he's writing here as a request. I believe, right worshipful, that you are not ignorant of what has been determined concerning me by the council of verbance Therefore, I entreat your lordship and that by the Lord Jesus, that if I am to remain here during the winter... You will request, request the procurer to be kind enough to send me from my goods, which he has in possession. A warmer cap, for I suffer extremely from cold in the head, being afflicted with a perpetual catar. This is inflammation in the nose and throat, which is considerably increased in the cell. A warmer coat also for that which I have is very thin, also a piece of cloth to patch my leggings. My overcoat has been worn out. My shirts are also worn out. He has a wool shirt of mine, if you'll be kind enough to send it. I have also with him leggings of thicker cloth for the putting on above. He also has warmer caps for wearing at night. I wish also his permission to have a candle in the evening, for it is wearisome to sit alone in the dark." 16 months, but above all, I entreat and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the procurer that he may kindly permit me to have my Hebrew Bible. My Hebrew grammar and a Hebrew dictionary that I may spend my time with that study. And in return, may you obtain your dearest wish, provided always that it be consistent with the salvation of your soul. But if any other resolutions have been come to me concerning me before the conclusion of the winter, I shall be patient, abiding the will of God to the glory of the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ, whose spirit I pray may ever direct your hearts. Amen. Friends, we're here with copies of this book in our laps because of the courage of this man. On October 6, 1536, Tyndale was stripped, defrocked from the priesthood. They hung him on a stake. Normally, again, he would be burned, but mercifully, they strangled him rather than burned him alive. Someone had placed gunpowder all around his body to make the burning go more quickly. It was a terrible sight. He was 42 years old. He simply wanted every Christian to be able to read the Word of God, from the priest, pastor, to the plowboy. His last words were Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And he dies. He paid the ultimate price to see the Word of God go forth. Jesus said in John 12, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. As Luther wrote, and we just sang, that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, This mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. In 1538, just two years after Tyndale's death, the Lord opened the King of England's eyes. King Henry VIII approved the Thomas Matthews Bible. To my knowledge, no one knows who Thomas Matthews is. You couldn't very really name it the William Tyndale Bible. That wouldn't look good. But that's what it was. The king loved it. And so he commissioned the printing of a revision of the Matthews Bible. It was called the Great Bible. And in 1539, copies of the English Bible were sent to every church in England. God answered Tyndale's prayer, and he honored his courageous life. Back when Tyndale had been captured, a friend of his went and nabbed up all Tyndale's work. That friend was John Rogers from the English House. Rogers is the man who edited and completed the Matthew's Bible. Miles Coverdale of the White Horse Inn, that group of college students, helps, but most of the work was Tyndale. Rogers went on to be the first martyr under Bloody Mary. Verses were added to the Bible in 1550. Then the Geneva Bible was produced in 1557 in large part by Coverdale and Knox and Calvin, which became the Bible of the Puritans. It became the Bible of America, largely Tyndale's work. Tyndale said, if God be on our side, what matter maketh it who be against us? Be they bishops, cardinals, popes, or whatsoever names, they will. Tyndale was called the Apostle of England. He was the father of the English Bible. He was the father of the English language. He was the father of the English Reformation. What about his significance? Should be clear already. But he produced a literary masterpiece. He was a master craftsman of the English language. 84% of the King James Bible is Tyndale. That's why I say Tyndale is the most quoted man in all the worlds. There would be no Shakespeare without Tyndale because of Tyndale's influence of the English language in so many ways. Our ESV, we preach and teach from the ESV, it's what's there in our chairs, is really in the tradition of the King James and Tyndale. It's one of the reasons we love it. This noun, noun construction, he, he really wanted to be so accurate with Hebrew that he often would have English that sounded different than the English of the day. And so noun of the noun was very, very rare until the translation from Hebrew so that you would have this Hebraic form of English. So the beast of the field, the birds of the air, that was all new. And there's so many different ways you can accurately translate a phrase. And so just listen to some of the turns of phrases that we have from Tyndale. Let there be light. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be merciful unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In him, we live and move and have our being. Fight the good fight. So many ways that these could have been constructed in a less beautiful and memorable way. 500 years later, newspapers, news sites are still using turns of phrases coined by Tyndale. Of course, they don't know that. He even made up several words that were were designed to convey accurate meaning. Words like intercession or atonement or Passover or mercy seat or scapegoats. What caused such tenacity and courage in Tyndale? Well, he knew that the word of God is of infinite value. One of Tyndale's opponents said of him, I always finding him singing one note. May that be said of us. He knew it was of infinite value because he read it, right? He knew it. Peter shares the same perspective. You've got a Bible. Open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. And I'm not going to preach this passage like I normally would. I just want us to look at how the Bible is described in these verses As was read, just a few ways that he describes what the word is. First thing he says, it is truth. Look at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. For a sincere brotherly love. The word's the truth. That's why. The word is capital T, truth. In a world of relativism that says whatever's true for you is great, whatever's true for me, we need to make this clear. There is absolute truth and it's found in God's words. To say otherwise, to disagree with so many, Peter included, but even Jesus who prayed, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Second way he describes the word is it's a word that causes new birth. Look at chapter 1, verse 23. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. This word is powerful. It brings about regeneration. The spirit accompanies the word and brings life out of spiritual death. That's why we sing one note. James says the same. Chapter 1, verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth. He gave us new birth by the word God. Of truth, this is why we want to major on the word in every area of our ministry here at Southside. It has the power of God attached to it. So we want a church that's filled with the exposition of the Word of God, and we want your homes to be saturated with the Word of God. Third way describes it. He says there in verse twenty-three, it's imperishable—not of imperishable, but not of perishable, but of imperishable. It will last. There are few things in this world that will last. We don't think about that long enough, often enough. It's a good word. Very few things in this world will last. Good word to folks who are building their lives, centering their lives, majoring on the minors, staking their lives on something other than the Lord. We need to stake everything on that which will remain unshaken at the second coming. Don't be caught climbing a ladder leaned against a wall of a building that is on its way down. Don't waste your life. What's going to last? What's imperishable in the midst of the perishable? The word of God and the people of God. The grass is going to wither. The flowers are going to fall. Everything else in life is transitory, but the word will remain. I've shared this with you before, but the French atheist philosopher Voltaire hated God. Therefore, he hated God's word. And he dismissed it and said, oh, in 100 years, it'll be just a museum piece, an irrelevant museum piece. We don't talk a whole lot about Voltaire anymore, but we talk about the Bible very regularly. He's gone. The Bible's not. In fact, his home, about 100 years later, his home was purchased by the Geneva Bible Society. (laughs) Imperishable. The kingdom has come, and the word of God is the constitution of the kingdom, and it will endure forever without amendments. Fourth, he says it's living. It's the living and abiding word of God. We're born again through that word that lives. God, by the Spirit, continues to speak through it. It's a living word. Hebrews 4 says the same. The word of God is living. It is active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give accounts. Fifth, the word of God is abiding. It's the living and abiding word. That's why he quotes the prophet here and says, All flesh is like grass. All its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Six, it's the word of God. This is God's word. What scripture says, God says. Flip over to the next book. We're in First Peter. Flip over to 2 Peter chapter 1. Notice how he describes Scripture in 2 Peter 1.20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Yes, did did humans write the Bible? Yes. We can't stop there, though. Did God write the Bible? Yes. God wrote the Bible by sending His Spirit to move the human author to write what He wanted to be written. God's word through human offers, authors to have a high view of God, therefore, is to have a high view of the word of God. If a church or a Christian downplays scripture, that church or that Christian is downplaying God. A church that ignores the hard parts of scripture that don't fit with whatever culture we may be in are cowards. And they're actually wanting to seek and to mold a God in their own making, a God in their own image that's more palatable to postmodern people. We're not allowed to do that. This isn't ours to change. This is why we teach it and preach it like we do. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If that's the case, if that's the nature of Scripture... God's word, God breathe. how should we handle it? It's a bad chapter break there in chapter four. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching years, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. It's God's word. And final way he describes it, he says, This word is what causes Christians to grow. 1 Peter 2 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if you're a bible marker circle two words by it you want to grow as a christian how do you grow as a christian by it you may grow I often want to often say this. We think about that saying, "Yeah, hey, you're the you're the preacher. Grow spiritually. I know that's your thing." But listen, friends, when we're growing spiritually, when we're growing in grace, every area of our life is affected. When we're growing spiritually, we become more patient people. We become more joyful people. We're able to endure trials better. We are more relationally skilled. So many things are affected when we're growing spiritually. How do we grow spiritually? By the word. Man does not live by bread alone, Jesus says. Man lives by the word of God. Jesus prays, sanctify them, set them apart as holy. By the truth, your word is truth. And so every believer, this isn't for new believers, this is for every believer, should long for the pure spiritual milk of the word that we might grow in grace. And what what a metaphor. We got a lot of babies around here. How do infants long for milk? That's how we ought to long for the Bible. Instinctively, eagerly, seemingly incessantly. Fervently, frequently, fiercely. Red-faced, curled back. That by it you may grow. No milk, no maturation. God's given us what we need to grow. The word that gave us life continues to give us life. It is vital in that sense, true sense of the word. It is oxygenating. As one author put it, you will stand in strength and grow in Christ and walk in joy and bless this world no further than you know this book. I'm so thankful for the Gideon International Ministry Only glory knows the amount of fruit that will have been born because those Bibles were available. I don't know if you've ever read their introduction, but let me read it to you. The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains lights to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, too, heaven is opened and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure it's given you. And life will be opened at the judgment and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, rewards the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. Church, let's cherish this book. Let's not take it for granted And we cherish the book because we cherish the message that it contains. We cherish the book because in it we learn of the holiness of God and our desperate state and our desperate need of a Savior and God's abundant provision of that Savior to be received through faith and faith alone. Let's treasure the Word of God. Pray with me. Father, we all confess together that we take so much for granted. We've got copies of your word laying all around our house. And so God, would you by your spirit change that? We confess it that we might not remain in a state of ingratitude, but that we might be not only grateful, but then we would act upon that gratitude and that we would cherish this book. We would know this book. We would read it. We would memorize it. We would saturate our homes with it, and we would seek to pass it on. Thank you for many, many, many faithful men and women, so many that we won't know until glory, but we are thankful today to celebrate a couple key figures like Martin Luther, flawed though he was, William Tyndale, flawed though he was, men of character and conviction that you raised up, and we are beneficiaries here that we get to know and sing about you and your abundant grace. Thank you for the gift of Christ. Thank you for the gift of your word by which we get to know him. Pray it in his name. Amen. Amen.